0: Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden and natural world. I'm your host, Misty Little. Imagine getting on a bicycle high in Mexico's oyamel fir forests and biking northward into the United States and on into Canada, looping back around and returning to where you started, all on a self-propelled mission to follow the monarch butterfly migration. That's what Sarah Dyckman did in 2017, She turned her butter bike adventure into an advocacy and educational project, speaking to groups of all ages along the way, and eventually writing her recently published book, Bicycling with Butterflies. Sarah and I talked about her bike tour, but also how she views changes in attitudes for monarchs and conservation in general. If you haven't had a chance to read her book, I highly recommend finding it and reading it this spring. It's a phenomenal book and one of my favorite reads from 2021. Alright, on to my conversation with Sarah. And um, all
1: right. Well, thank you, Sarah, for coming onto my little podcast. I know you've had a quite of a speaking tour. I listened to a couple episodes of other podcasts uh, you've been a guest on before uh, uh, we spoke here. And uh, I appreciate you coming to talk about bicycling with butterflies. I, I read the book back uh, last september i believe and um, been trying to connect a little bit since then um, if you could maybe just go ahead and start introduce yourself and who you are and i mean you have like an extensive background uh, of doing all sorts of other projects and maybe a little bit about your about yourself
2: well thanks for having me on your show it's it's always a pleasure sort of the goal of my my bicycle trip which we'll get into and and maybe my my life right now is to be a voice for the monarch so Doing presentations and podcasts is certainly very important to me and, and, and the way that I can, you know, kind of repay the monarchs for all they've given me. But that's a, an introduction without even saying my name. So I'll start over with <laughs> <laughs> with, um, with, my, with my name. And so I'm, I'm Sarah and I wrote Bicycling with Butterflies, which is about a bike tour I did following the monarch migration by bike from Mexico to Canada and back. And along the way I gave presentations and just really tried to call to attention this incredible insect that, that visits us, you know, so much of the time finding wilderness is about going somewhere. And here is a, a butterfly that will literally bring adventure to you. If you take the time to, to look and take the time to give them habitat. Correct. Right. And this is, this is one of, of many tours I've done. I, have ridden my bike probably about 80,000 miles, I I guesstimate, in, including a bike tour that went to every state, but Hawaii, every United State that is, and then another bike tour that went from Bolivia and South America to Texas, and also I've, done, I've canoed long distances as well as done lots and lots of through hiking. But this is the first time I wrote a book, and it was the first time that that I saw that what I had to say was was important enough to sit down and, and take the time to write
1: right so like how did you start beyond a book like what came up with how did that all begin because I think that's as interesting as as you writing you know bicycling with uh, butterflies too like you've just you've created this interesting uh, I guess career of advocacy and education, but you do interesting things along the way. How did that start
2: It started sort of on accident, which a lot of things do. Yeah. I I was planning that bike tour to 49 States with three of my friends from college. It was a end of college kind of big trip that we'd been daydreaming about for a while. And we were planning our route and we knew it was going to be multiple months. It ended up being 15 months. And as we were planning, I just kept thinking, I love biking. It's like, when, especially then it was my favorite thing in the world. Every company, every part of my life biking was involved, but I was just like, that's going to be kind of boring for 15 <laughs> months. I need, a, I need a purpose. And there are lots and lots of people that do 15 month bike tours with, without a, a grand purpose. And the, the grand purpose of course is, is having an adventure and meeting people and finding out about your country or wherever you are and yourself and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's like totally important and valid, but I came up with the idea to do presentations to kids, and it was a, a kind of funny idea considering none of us had ever given a presentation to kid yeah. kids. Yeah, uh, but we ended. I mean, our first presentations were so embarrassing. I mean, I remember one like the first. The first one was like maybe a thousand, or not even a thousand, 500 miles into our trip, and we hadn't done much. And here we are <laughs> talking to kids, and and I remember we had such little stuff to say that we just had all the kids stretching as if they were going to go bike touring. To <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so grateful for those teachers that didn't kick us out because about, about some, somewhere in Montana, we kind of hit our stride and started giving presentations and it opened up so many doors and it was also just so satisfying and so rewarding. And that trip led to my, my Missouri river through paddle where we also went and talked to kids. And I, I, just, I loved using an adventure as a platform to get people of all ages excited about adventuring and excited about their own backyards. Because when someone is adventuring in your neighborhood, in your town, that tells you something that tells you that there's something worth traveling to see and experience. And, and I think if we can see the potential in our own yards, then, then um, we'll, we'll spend more time taking care of them. Yeah, especially
1: I, I, there's just so many people that don't even know what parks or opportunities are even available in their own city because they're not exposed to it or they don't know where to look. And um, I think it's cool that, you know, like you come through their town and you're kind of like bringing that information to them and letting them know that, hey, well, whether it's Monarchs or, or whatever other project you've done, that's, that's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, and I think that was a, it was really evident with the monarchs, but also with my Missouri River trip because I grew up on the Missouri River um, near Can- near Kansas City, and everyone told me like I grew up thinking that if you basically if you like looked at the river you were gonna die. It was so dangerous, <laughs> so scary, so gross. And then you paddle on on the river for many months, and you realize like it's only dangerous if you're dumb and you're you know drunk without a life jacket, it's- right. If you have respect, the river is, is really beautiful and wild and amazing. And, and yeah, I, I think being that trip really, really helped share that story and give a different narrative to that river. Right.
1: So did you... You know, you've come up with doing all these different projects and trips and adventures. Uh, How did you come up with the Butterbike Tour? Was it you were learning about the monarchs? Did you already have an affinity for the monarchs and the monarch migration? Um, How did how did that all happen and get put together?
2: It it was kind of an accident as well. A lot of my trips just start out as these like kind of random little daydreams, like oh that might be fun. And the monarch one happened. I was actually on the my bike tour from Bolivia to Texas, and my friend and I were in Mexico, and I knew about the monarchs like in a general sense, and I thought, oh yeah, they, they overwinter in Mexico. We should we should go check them out, but of course, after doing a little more research, I realized they're the monarchs overwinter about 10,000 feet above sea level, and they leave in March, and it was like the very end of March. And we were not at ten thousand feet above sea level. And so, we were like, <laughs> do we really want to bike up a a mountain um, to potentially not see monarchs? And so I said, no, let's let, let's just make plans to come back. And and so, you know, for a few months, I just kind of rode my bike and daydreamed about that return. And and then I discovered that monarchs, you know, just just because whenever something's kind of put in your mind, you start noticing it everywhere. So I started noticing that. Oh, monarchs are already in in classrooms, and oh, teachers are already using monarchs to study to study geography and life cycles, and 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 I just kept seeing oh, there's so much potential here, and so yeah, one day I just said, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride my bike with the butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: think I I feel like I may have heard you on a podcast right when you were starting your adventure a few years ago, and I remember thinking, wow, that's really cool, and then you know here you are with the book coming out and um, I'm just thinking about like you putting all of that, pro- all of this project together, like highlight your route a little bit for people like, you know, did you come up with the route beforehand or did you kind of decide to take your own path as you were going through the migration um, or did you, did, yeah, did you wing it or did you plan? <laughs>
2: I mean a little bit of everything. I started out with a general sense, of course, when I was in, I was going to start in Mexico and go north, which is about as general as you can get. And then I had a, a few places I knew I wanted to visit, like I knew I wanted to visit my parents in Kansas City and a, a few other folks along the way. And then as I started pedaling with, with with not much of a plan other than north I would I started getting emails and invitations to speak at schools or to visit wildlife refuges or or meet someone who had an amazing backyard garden or, or front yard garden. And so I would look at the map and I would do some calculations and think can I add an extra 100 miles? Can I make it by that time and it, to the extent possible I tried to say yes as as much as possible and and so if you look at my route it, it basically goes from Mexico, pretty straight to Canada. And then there's a big swing over to the East Coast before kind of meandering back to the Midwest and back South. And there's a lot of zigzags and a lot of squiggles and almost <laughs> always, all the squiggles are, are from an invitation. Or, and I just always tried to go where the energy was because like I said, I was trying to be a voice for the monarch and I couldn't arrange every interview and every presentation. I could say yes to someone that had the passion to make the calls to convince a school to let a bike, a bicyclist in <laughs> to convince the media that this was a story worth following. So I, I really just tried to to take advantage of the, the passion that was there.
1: So, I mean, I as an expert, I, I have through hiked a couple trails, so I have an idea of what it's like to kind of be planning your camping and planning where you're going to be. And at least on trails like that, there are already zones for you to camp in per se. Um, but you're on people's back roads and I'm guessing you're just pitching a tent wherever you can feel safe. Is is that correct?
2: Right. Since, since I had a, a bicycle that was weighted down with, with everything I needed, there was a, a lot of freedom to that. And I wanted well, one to to save costs by not paying to camp every night, and two, I I didn't want to have the stress of being like, oh, I got to bike 40 miles before lunch because I've got to get to this campsite spot by eight before the sun sets or whatever, and and so I really just I I love the freedom of of just being able to stop, and of course that gets complicated, and it's tricky, and I have to always be thinking like, oh, I I I need to stop early today because I don't want to get into the suburbs or or, or whatnot. And, and sometimes not, not having to plan, then I'd bike like three extra hours that day looking for a place that right. was safe. <laughs> for the most part, I mean, it always worked out. And I think it's such a important reminder that all travelers need a place every single night. And the monarchs are of course travelers. And so we spend so much time thinking about their overwintering sites or maybe their breeding sites. But if they don't have a safe spot to stay every night, then then they can't make the journey. So just like I needed to find a spot every night, so did the monarchs.
1: Right, right. Well, and, I, and to jump down the list of, of topics here, I think that that comparison there sticks out to me because you compared that same thing to um, the monarchs in, in like grocery stores for humans and the monarchs and their food um, as if grocery stores started being less and less for humans, or I mean, you could even just consider, you know, food deserts in some parts of cities. Like people have our time finding safe and affordable food for themselves. Um, The monarchs come into having that same issue with habitat loss or, and habitat fragmentation and, and, and loss of milkweed. Um, I mean, I I think that's just an interesting comparison um, between those two. And I guess, how did that look for you on the ground as you're bicycling along noticing that habitat loss and fragmentation?
2: Right. Well, I mean, that's a, such a great point that just like the monarchs need a safe spot to stay every night, they need food to power that journey, especially in the fall when when the monarchs are flying south because they have to eat enough nectar or drink enough nectar to survive off the, those fat reserves they're accumulating all winter long. So uh, it's just, I think we can get so much empathy by seeing the world through new eyes and visiting cities, or and seeing wow, there's not a lot of grocery stores. Like, it doesn't have to be just thinking about monarchs. I think, I think the world deserves, um, and people deserve, and animals deserve to, to have us thinking about about them in new eyes in lots of ways. But anyway, I, I'm yeah, no, no. Um, that's okay. Well, I guess to
1: jump back down to Mexico. So you started. He started in Mexico mm-hmm. in March, um, and I've always wanted to visit the roosting grounds as well. I know some people are lucky enough to get down there to visit them. Can you just talk about that a little bit, like how cool it is to be seeing thousands of monarchs roosting at ten thousand feet?
2: It's, it's quite extraordinary. You know, basically all the monarchs born between the Rocky Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean fly to this small forest in Mexico. And what's super extraordinary is that because the migration is multi-generational, the monarchs that I that I saw when I started my trip were not the ones that I saw when I ended. But somehow they managed to come to this one place, which is the first mind-blowing thing you're thinking about when you visit. And then most of the time it's pretty cold, so the monarchs are just hanging from the trees. They kind of look like hives or, or nests almost in the trees. And they remain motionless, and this is, of course, important because they're relying on those fat reserves. And if they're flying all, all winter, they'll, they'll burn their calories too quickly. But then what, what happens is in about, about usually in February, hopefully um, it starts warming up and the monarchs start flying more and more and they're flying down the mountain each day to find water and they start mating. And my favorite part of this is when you, when you go there on a sunny day, you can, you can close your eyes and you can just listen to the sound of millions of monarchs flying. And one, one thing that I've, I, like one of my favorite things to point out is that this is such a beautiful metaphor for monarch conservation. Because if it had just, if it's just one monarch flying through the sky, you're not gonna hear that monarch. But if there's a million, it just creates this beautiful sound. And I, I think it's the same for conservation, right? If it's just me talking, I'm. I'm not going to make enough noise for most people to hear. But if I'm talking and you're talking and people that are listening share the story, all of a sudden that's a lot of voices that are impossible to ignore. And I. I just love that lesson that the monarch teaches us in in their overwintering grounds.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I also appreciated the perspective you had of leaving and uh, starting that journey through Mexico. And you had a couple follies, like you know, going through some. Uh, dead end roads and some i don't know so crazy i think there were some crazy bushwalking adventures I, I remember and um i don't know it seems interesting to think of everything you you went through and then all the things they have to get through just to get to you know the united states and continue their migration um i guess kind of like what were your thoughts as you're making your way through mexico are you excited nervous
2: the northbound and southbound had different thoughts northbound i was thinking oh my gosh if i don't see a monarch this is gonna be so embarrassing <laughs> and southbound was like wow like we we're doing it we're, we're gonna make it for sure and i was seeing lots of stragglers i was a straggler myself on the southbound route but we made it and the mon i mean the monarchs it's just against all odds right it starts out a female monarch lays about 500 eggs 95% of those will become part of the food chain right away. And then those that survive, they have to battle, just like you were saying, roads and weather, and they have to navigate. It's just like the, the odds are just so phenomenally small that they'll make it, and they do. And, you know, I, I wrote one book about my adventures, and I just imagine what if if every monarch could write a book? I mean, they would just be, every single one would be wild <laughs> probably more than mine yeah
1: i car today didn't get hit yay
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my um so you crossed in the u.s uh, you mentioned it being kind of anti-climatic were you nervous like in any attitude changes like versus going to mexico versus coming to the u.s like um i would i don't know I've never been to Mexico cuz so I can't say like what attitudes toward people just like randomly biking through <laughs> the country but I would imagine in the US it's a little bit different did you have any attitude differences from people you encountered
2: I mean the 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 biggest difference is that drivers in the United States are so much more entitled I think I you know people are always so scared for me in Mexico but it's like so many roads in Mexico drivers are like expecting to share the road with mules and potholes and kids and like everyone's just like they're I don't know I I can't quite describe it other than that I I feel safer on Mexican roads often the U.S. it's like oh the speed limit says 70 miles an hour never mind that there's a cyclist like trying to stay as far to the right as possible this is my road I'm going and and so and the the cars are all bigger and yeah yeah (laughs) Um, I think that's the biggest difference, but you know really there's there's literally no difference between the hundred miles south of the border and hundred miles north of the border. um they look the same, they feel the same right, right like you know, I think again, that's another lesson the monarch offers is monarchs are not Mexican, they're not United States, and they're not Canadian, they are North American, and it's not one country's challenge to save them. It's all three of our countries and we are neighbors and that, that line, that border is so arbitrary and not one monarch ever, ever has crossed and thought, okay, new country, here we come. No. Right.
1: <laughs> well, I think that goes for uh, so many animals that use the lands through, through all these different borders that um borders don't mean anything to them they they use the land and it's important to them it's valuable to them and it's how they survive and um you know unfortunately humans have an interesting perspective on that (laughs) um and a lot of your projects your goal is you know this outreach component um maybe you could just talk a little bit about some of the presentations a lot. Did you already have a presentation kind of developed for this? or Did you develop it as you're going along?
2: No, the presentation kind of unfolds as the trip unfolds and definitely, well, certainly the first, the first half, it changed every single presentation. Cause I'd have new stories and I'd I'd be able to kind of substitute the more boring ones yeah. in the beginning <laughs> for some better ones. But yeah, it was constantly changing. And of, I also like, my target audience like i thought that my presentation like i thought the message was most important for me to give to like eight to twelve year olds but but i did presentations from kindergarten through college and then general audiences you know adult presentations at refuges and whatnot and so of course that made it change a lot and yeah it it was so much fun i and i have like little tricks to the trade like one one part of my presentation for kids that always is really popular is I'll set up my tent and then we'll see how many kids we can fit in my tent <laughs> and the record was like 20 kindergartners or 18 kindergartners it was like too many kindergartners <laughs> It's like really it's exciting and then you know I brag about how I can if, if my tent is basically a mansion and so if I can lift a mansion with one finger and I lift my tent with one finger that um then I'm, I'm really, really strong. <laughs> so right? Like things like that. and It's just so fun to see kids cheering me on and, you know, cheering on their, their, their classmates that are, that are squished into the tent. And, and I think just seeing that I'm a normal person up there, you know, I'm not some super smart, super athletic, super anything. I'm just like someone that decided to go ride a bike. I think it's so valuable.
1: Right. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, you, you have this presentation setup. You're going to speak at all these groups, but I think it's the random encounters that probably maybe stick in your head a little more because they're more one-on-one. They're so unique and so different. Did you have any random encounters with anybody that sticks out in your mind that, did you change anybody's mind on, you know, maybe they're out mowing their lawn and they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this.
2: I don't think I changed anyone's mind, but I think I was just like another voice and there's something i'm not even sure if this is true or something i've just carried with me and it's kind of wrong or kind of right i'm not sure but it's like everyone has to hear someone something like seven times Mm -hmm. in order for it to stick so i thought i'm sure i i was one of those seven voices many 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 times and then i like to think that you know that person on the lawnmower that i was like wait that's milkweed you know they heard it from me, and then maybe their grandkid came home because they just learned about the life cycle in school. And eventually, that change will happen. But yeah, the the roadside encounters were always interesting yeah. <laughs> and fun for the most part. But you know, sometimes it's hard. You're tired, and you just want to get where you're going, and you don't want to answer the same question over and over again. But I, like, had this little note on my handlebar bag that had, too, I said, it's easier to be nice So rather than just being, like, begrudging that someone stopped you. Just say what you have to say, and it's going to lead somewhere way more interesting and fun than if you just were like, I got to get where I'm going.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, especially because if you put them off and later they're like, they saw you on the news and somebody's, Sarah's coming through town, they'd have been like, oh, well, she was mean to me. (laughs) So it's good to be, like you said, it's better to be nice than to uh to have a negative interaction, but I can understand when you're tired and you've been biking all day. Yeah. Um well and to piggyback off that a little bit, um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot too, because um, you know, there's a couple people that I I follow online who've, you know, they've really changed their yards completely to native plants. And uh they have this really cool native plant garden. Um and then they sh- zoom out and they show their neighbors and you know, it's not like they just did this yesterday. They, they've had this garden for like a decade and yet none of their neighbors have even thought about converting and, and over and, and doing the same thing. And I just think like, even though we're saying all this stuff where we can talk about the monarchs so much, it's just like, I have, I, I just, in my head, I'm wondering like, what is, what's the impetus to get us to change our behaviors to actually make that effort to want to do better, um, I, and, I, and I know you don't have that answer too, but I don't know if it's something you've ever thought about. Like, <sighs> it's a very heavy question <laughs> here. But does do you have any
2: hope for people to actually changing behaviors after all of that? I've changed, right? I used to like walk down the street and be like, "Oh yeah, green grass, that's cool," and now I'm like, "Ah, oh, what a waste! Oh, so disappointing." And so I think, I think reframing how we see the world is the first step and then and then it is a little bit you know right now there's pressure for people with wildland garden front yard gardens to conform and eventually there will be enough people like like our species and all the species on the planet depend depend on it to convert our lawns and share our space with our more than human neighbors and they'll, there will be pressure eventually for that other way because enough people will eventually be sharing their lawns that the people that are just mowing and putting pesticides and watering and yada, 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 and yeah. their lawns are are going to look around and be like, like I'm, I'm taking and I'm not giving. And, and like, I, I think that we can have that paradigm shift. And, and there's like some amazing, amazing books and amazing advocacy work happening to do that. I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Doug Tallamy, who, wrote um, Nature's Best Hope and The Nature of Oaks. And his whole premise is if everyone shared their yards with wild creatures and plants, it would be the largest national park. Yes, I,
1: I love that premise that he's on right now. It's amazing. And I, I, wish, I wish we could get more people involved. And I hope, I hope it slowly is a spreading effort for sure
2: yeah and and that's what it's gonna take and it's gonna yeah i think the monarch offers us this really beautiful gift which is so much of the of all these crises seem impossible to solve but like you can just go out into your yard today and dig up some grass and plant some native plants and some milkweed and then you can like feel what it feels like to be doing something positive to being to helping another creature like today and I think if you do that and you share that that joy not every neighbor is going to adopt it but it's it's going to be one of those seven voices that's going to be changing the paradigm and if if enough people do that just like the monarchs then we can we can add up to something bigger than one any one I- of us
1: Right, right. Well, I mean, I think your book has uh, done extremely well. Uh, has it gone better for you than you thought it would uh, when you wrote it? When you, did you, I guess also to back up to that, did you intend to write a book when you were writing, starting the Butterbike tour or was it something that came that happened after the, the fact?
2: On every single trip I've ever done, people are like, when are you writing a book? And I'm like, or, or are you writing a book? And I'd always say, are you going to buy the book? <laughs> <laughs> and be like, I don't know. I didn't have that much to say. Like lots of people do trips and I I never was, I never really enjoyed reading adventure trips. I always just like, made me anxious. I wanted to be doing it. And I don't really care what roads they were on or like what they were eating for dinner. Yeah. Um, so, but about halfway through, I'm like, oh, I have something to say. And it doesn't need to be like a travel log where I, recount every mile that i did. Yeah. That's not interesting to me. Um so i kind of got it in my head about halfway through that i needed to write this book so that i could i could have a louder voice and i i went about it differently than i think most authors do because i had no idea what i was doing and so i just wrote it and my expectations were i'm going to write this book and it might be terrible and maybe no one will ever read it but i'm i'm going to do it and i'm going to learn a lot. And in that way, I, I see the monarchs as my my writing coaches. They, they, they were the reason I, I wrote. And I just, I had no idea what I was doing. So I just wrote literally about every person I met, every important thing that happened for, to me on the trip. And the first draft was about twice as long as the book I have now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I just kept going and I'm immensely grateful for where it's gone. And I I've also just like realized that it's just this, like, such this beautiful relationship the monarch and I have. Like the monarch, I gave my energy and my time to the monarchs, and they gave me this really fun adventure. And then I sat down and I gave them time to write this book, and I'm I'm talking for them now. And in return, they have just kept bringing me more opportunities and a paycheck and you know, they, they're just encouraging me to like, think, oh, how can I repay them? How can I do this? How can I say thanks to them? And so the more I say thanks, it seems like the more they say thanks back and we're just completely connected in this, this mutualistic way that I appreciate and I'm really grateful for.
1: Well, I mean, they thanked you with a national outdoor book award. So that's pretty cool. I mean, it's <laughs> something you probably didn't imagine that would be happening when you sat down to write it.
2: No, no, yeah, it's, it's awesome. And it's, it's beautiful. And I'm, yeah, just thrilled. And I, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm still on this adventure with monarchs, and they're still kind of leading the way and I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Let's go there. Let's do this. Yeah,
1: well, I think the one thing that sentence really stuck out to me is in your whole book, and actually there were several sentences. And I, as I was right, reading the book, I was writing down notes and things that just really resonated with me but the one that really stuck with me is if you don't mow hope can bloom and hope can fly to mexico and um it uh it really drives home the force of how tied we are to our lawns and to mowing and it drives me nuts when I see people mowing down milkweed patches in my own neighborhood, my own area, you know, just, you know, in April, just as the green milkweed has come up and I'm just like, no, they need that right now. They're coming through. Or in late August and September, when they start coming back this way and, and people have already said, eh, we're going to mow it over. And because it's been summer, um, I think, I, I just want to say, I appreciated all of your lyrical writing. I, and, and the really interesting, Things that grabbed out at me, and uh, thank you for that.
2: Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that, and it's it's so true, right? It's like I would see so many patches of milkweed, like you're saying, and I I I wept on the side of the road from milkweed that had been mowed, and I I wept when I passed too many green yards or miles and miles of monoculture herbicide ridden corn. I I cried a lot for the monarchs, but then you'd find that little patch that was safe and you'd see that caterpillar and you're like that caterpillar is our hope and that caterpillar could defy all these odds and fly to Mexico and my god like if that's not a reason to believe that we can help the monarchs then I don't know what is
1: well do you have any final thoughts on this big grand tour uh, what you hope people can take away from your trip I mean I think I mean there's so much you've already said that they can take away, but um, if they, if they do buy your book and, or check it out from the library, like what are they going to find in there? That's going to entice them to become better stewards of the monarch migration.
2: Well, I think, you know, my book is half complete on appreciation and joy for the monarch and maybe half frustration and anger and (laughs) it's like despair. And I think that people that feel that despair, you know, people like you and I that might see a patch of milkweed and that like, getting mowed and just be devastated. Like, I think there's something super healing and super important to know that you're not alone and to know that like, you're not grieving this, this grief alone. And then for the people that see that milkweed, I'm like, ah, it's a weed. I think for them, if there's a moment to say like, well, that's not a weed, that is an important and and beautiful plant. And I think the more we know about these animals that visit us and live among us, the more appreciation we'll have and and the more willingness and readiness we'll have to to start sharing our, our, our homes with them once again.
1: And do you have any current projects? I mean, I'm sure you're still doing plenty of speaking engagements for the book, but uh, is there anything you're working on next for uh, beyond the book?
2: I am super excited to to continue my adventures. I really want to be a voice for for frogs. So I did a little tiny frog trip for a few weeks and have been writing a lot about that. And then, of course, I'm also trying to continue to be a voice for the monarch. And I started off wanting to wanting this book to be for 10 year olds. Um, That's (laughs) not working. But I kind of was able to get all that anger and frustration out and all the kind of the boring more adulty things out and then now I'm I'm trying to return my focus to, to write this book for 10 year olds because I think it's it's so important to know that there's lots of ways to live and that there's lots of possibility and and again that that whole theme of like yes the world feels full of impossible problems but there are these really easy tangible solutions that any one person can do. And I think that message is so important or, or else we're all going to just get into the fetal position and rock and <laughs> move up because it's too hard. Yes. Yes. Well, where can people follow you
1: guys or follow you online? Um, I know your website, but do you have social media, anything like that?
2: I do. I'm on Facebook at beyond the book. Um, I'm trying to be on Instagram. I think of I think I've posted a few a few things, but mostly my my, my website's kind of the one stop shop there at beyondabook.org. Okay,
1: perfect. Well, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for writing the book I, and just drawing so much attention. You know, there's so many people already doing, you know, a lot of work with the monarchs and the monarch migration, but I think this reaches out to a different audience. And hopefully we can, hopefully you can grab. Other people into the cause, and uh, I don't know. We can do something for the monarchs, and in return, you know, other species along the way.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I'm. I'm hopeful in that respect. Will we've got a lot of voices speaking, so we can't have too many.
0: <laughs> That's it for my conversation with Sarah. You can find more information about her butterbike tour and her other projects on the podcast website at thegardenpathpodcast.com. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast newsletter, you can find it on the podcast website as well. Until next time, happy gardening.